0: The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Today FM.
1: It all happens here.
0: Many times on this programme in recent years, we've spoken to sports stars about adjusting to life after sport. But of course, that applies to many things where people perhaps have a degree of fame early in life and then it ends when they have a long life left ahead of them. To do what and how will they readjust to not having the fame to which they may have become accustomed? So it's not just sport. What about music? Nick Durden has written a fascinating book, Exit Stage Left, which looks at what has happened to some of the stars of previous generations in pop music and rock music and how they got on with things after they were no longer as famous and as popular as they once had been. Nick, thank you very much for joining us. What prompted you to do this book?
1: Um, Well, it's something I've wanted to cover for a long time now, how musicians manage their life after that first flush of fame and how they endure and reinvent themselves and and often continue to thrive. I've been writing about music, uh, initially as a music journalist, for about 30 years now. And during that time, I realised that, I suppose what everybody realises, is that history fetishizes the new. There is this disproportionate attention on the first album and the second album, but not so much on the fifth, you know, or the 15th even. It's almost like there's a presumption that once you've hit your commercial peak, your best is behind you. And I wondered whether that was true and whether the um, pop stars themselves thought that was true. Yeah, in some respects,
0: are you better off maybe developing a cult following that there are many bands which continue for decades because they have a loyal dedicated base they may not necessarily have had the number one chart hits or get all the main tv appearances but those who get that tend to fade away more quickly than those who endure
1: i also found that a lot of them who did have success early on didn't really like being in the spotlight that much they found that fame was terribly corrupting influence on them and it made it harder to write the songs that they wanted to write and they, they found that they were kind of marketable properties and they didn't really want that so they much we were much happier performing to a cult audience you know not every band wants to become the Rolling Stones
0: Nick, I want to go through some sort of case studies, some examples that you have in the book. Uh, There are quite a few that are Irish-related, and I'll get to those in a moment, but also one band that was very popular in Ireland, a a British Midlands band, but which had, I think its roots in some respects in Ireland, Dexie's Midnight Runners, and the song Come On Eileen.
1: Um, Whatever happened to the lead singer, Kevin Rowland? He was a fascinating case study. He was someone who I think almost became famous by mistake. He just wanted to be in a band and he wanted to write the kind of songs he wanted to write. But I think it was, what, 81, 82? Um, he, He happened upon Come On Eileen, which brought him Immortality and the record company wanted more of the same. Fans wanted more of the same. But he was an artist. He'd written his hit single and he wanted to write something different. And so... He kind of struggled with fame, and towards the end of that decade, the 80s, the band had split up, a couple of albums hadn't done as well as the albums previously, and he found himself with addiction problems, and at one point, he was um, on the door, and that was really difficult for someone. What I found throughout the research of the book is, once you've been famous, people never really forget you, so he had turned up to to the Dole office one day to sign on and to have that interview that everyone unemployed has about what kind of work they might seek. And, of course, he had a very recognizable face, and all of a sudden people started singing Come On Eileen at him, hoping that he might join in. But, you know, it wasn't the time, it wasn't the place. So I got the sense that he kind of struggled with it. Like so many people that I interviewed, the ultimate kind of salvation his way through was to follow his own path so he went on to have a really interesting idiosyncratic solo career. Yes, essentially did what he wanted to do, but away from the spotlight.
0: Okay, let me throw another one at you and this one goes back to the 1980s. Terence Trent Darby, songs like Sign Your
1: Name Across My Heart, If You Let Me Stay. What happened to him? You know, he was just amazing. I still remember him seemingly coming out of the blue. I think it was maybe 1987 and suddenly it looked like he was the biggest pop star on the planet and designed to be the biggest pop star on the planet, but like Prince, he was very sure of his abilities and he wanted to go off on all sorts of tangents the record company didn't particularly want. So a bit like the Kevin Rowland story, he didn't just want to keep on produce hits. He wanted to write other kind of songs. So, you know They wouldn't have had that kind of home that they had on Radio 1 in the early days. So he... He ended up a recruiting in Los Angeles and years later came back with a completely different name, uh, a name from, which had Buddhist extraction. His name is now Sananda Maitreya. And he felt that Terence Trent Derby had to die for Sananda Maitreya to live. So for him, fame kind of burned him and almost destroyed him. And he had to reinvent himself entirely. He now lives in Milan. With his wife and two children. He writes, records, produces, and releases his own albums on his own label. And if he doesn't have anywhere near as many followers as he used to do in the early days, he feels that that's something that's worth losing in order to maintain his sanity. And I think everybody that I spoke to in the book has had their own their own kind of journey with that, but they have all emerged with sanity intact. And I have hoped that as much as I hope that music fans would read it, that it might appeal to kind of, you know, the, the musicians of today we did want to have an idea of how to negotiate an industry that perhaps doesn't always have your best interest at heart. Well, let's
0: talk about solo female artists, because for every Joni Mitchell who endures across decades, it strikes me that you have these sudden emergence of female artists who are stars for maybe a couple of years and then who fade away. And one I'm particularly taken by, I'm sure many people of different generations know the Suzanne Vega song, Tom's Diner. Suzanne Vega, when she used to come to Ireland in the nineteen eighties, would had this passionate follow- following. I remember a work colleague of mine who went to see her five nights in a row in the Olympia Theatre, uh-huh. sitting in the front row every night just to listen to her. And what happened to her?
1: Basically, that's what you know. What you were saying earlier about perhaps certain artists perhaps won't be the cult status. She was never going to be a commercial proposition because she was at odds with the mood at the time you know the 80s was all about madonna and cyndi Lauper, and suzanne vega was far more austere far more folky but she broke through because she was an incredibly talented artist and as you said with you know with yeah. Diana, with marlena on the wall she had huge hits all over the world and had a moment but it really was only a moment by 1990 she felt confident enough to mount her most ambitious tour to date but by that stage, the fans had moved on because all of us music fans are fickle because we are spoiled for choice. She hadn't done anything wrong at all. What had happened was her success had reminded the record industry that there is nothing quite as alluring and as attractive as a singer-songwriter in touch with their emotions. So by the time that she was returning with her third album, Sinead O'Connor was around, Tanita Tickerham was around, a few years later, acts like Jewel and Fiona Apple and Alanis Morissette. So suddenly, Suzanne Vegas found herself pushed to the margins as an elder stateswoman, if you like, but she had built up that cult following. So although her commercial peak may have been between 1987 and 1990. What, 32 years later, she is still performing all over the world to packed houses, doing whatever she wants. And when I interviewed her, she sounded incredibly fulfilled as an artist. One of the standout quotes was, would I like another hit single? Well, I wouldn't mind, but I'm not going to chase it. What
0: about Bob Geldof from Dublin? Because Bob Geldof. Uh, had a successful first act of the Boomtown Rats and then he reinvented himself as one of the world's great charity organisers and a lobbyist for those in poverty. And he's also had another successful career as a television producer and maker. But how much does he still miss, do you think, the first act when he was relevant as
1: a musician? I think I found with everybody I interviewed that if you leave music or if music leaves you, it has a habit of calling you back because nothing quite fills that hole. I guess because if you have the ability to make music, it must be such a an incredibly satisfying thing to do, so you want to keep on doing it. And Geldof was the perfect example of the fact that pop stars, almost in a literal sense, are extraordinary. They have that something extra. for so burst out of Ireland, what, mid-'70s, onto a worldwide stage and was just... You know, I vividly remember as a kid watching them and being pinned to the wall by, by every performance I ever saw on TV. I never got to, to see them live. And they wanted to shake up the music scene, and they did. And then he said, by 1985, a bunch of upstarts were doing exactly to the Boomtown Rats, what the Boomtown Rats did to the likes of Punk, Status Crow, Cliff Richard, whoever, 10 years before. And he thought, hang on. Is, it, is that it? Is my, is my time over? I'm 30. There's got to be more. But successive singles had flopped. The albums hadn't done as well as um, possible. So suddenly he found himself with time on his hands. So he was home one evening flicking through the TV channels when he um, happened upon a news report from Michael Burke um, talking about that biblical famine in Ethiopia. And of course we all know what happened next. He He fed the world. And as satisfying a role as that must have been for him. And then, as you said, to go on to reinvent himself completely as a very canny businessman and a a TV producer, he never lost sight of who he had been. He was always Bobby Boomtown, and he wanted to be a pop star again. So when the Boomtown Rats inevitably got back again, because it seems that all bands inevitably get back at some point, he was in his happy place again, and he said he's, ne- you know, he's never more satisfied than when pulling on a pair of skinny jeans and going on a stage, whether he was 25, 55, or now, well, he, I think he's in his late 60s now, and the last time the band got together was shortly before COVID in 2019. And he loved being back on stage again because, as he said to me, my passport doesn't say saint, my passport says musician. Thank
0: you very much for being with us, Nick Durrton, author of Exit Stage Left. The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Today FM.
1: It all happens here.